Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mail in a record month. Well, we've just finished a record month. July was our best ever month for new subscribers. I'm sitting here with Jack Delhanty, long-time staff writer for the Mail. Hi, Jack. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Um, we are going to talk about a couple of different stories today. One is this huge story about Andrew Malkinson, mm. the man who was wrongfully convicted of a of a crime he didn't commit, and where a lot of focus now is on Greater Manchester Police. Yeah. Uh, what did they do wrong in their investigation? How did they um, contribute to the jailing of an innocent man? The other one is a story you wrote over the weekend, mm-hmm. which is about a Ukrainian family who you met when they first came over here as refugees after the beginning of the Ukraine war. More than 160,000 Ukrainian refugees have come to the UK since Russia invaded their country. Thousands have already turned to local councils for somewhere to live at risk of becoming homeless. A rapidly increasing number of Ukrainians living in Britain are struggling to find a place to call home. And recently you met them again. Yep, that's right. It's about, well, the family, the Tishkals, Katerina, who I met last year, who basically works in Manchester and is a big, has a big role at the Ukrainian sort of center, community center yeah. in Cheatham Hill. While I got to know her a little bit, I found out about this sort of story of a family coming over. She was like orchestrating it from afar and then I ended up meeting them when they first arrived and now I've met them again. So yeah. It's really cool. I don't think we follow up on our stories enough, so it's really nice to do like a, yeah, a proper yeah. follow up. Um, so we'll talk about that in a minute. But first of all, yeah, we've just had this record month. 200 new mill members, or was it more than that? 206. 206 in the end, yeah. I think our record was 198 before, so we smashed it. It's just so many new members. I just remember there were times last year where we'd, we'd get like 30 or 40 new ones in a month. And it was like, it meant your overall number didn't go that go up that much. And then you remember have, when I, I first started, we actually did ring a bell every time we got a new member. Yeah, that yeah. That was actually a th- Now you wouldn't actually do that. <laughs> but like, by then it was genuinely a thing to like ring a bell. We've like still got that bell. Yeah, Molly yeah. bought a not really nice little bell um, and it's sitting on my desk. But yeah, we didn't do that in the, in July because it would have no. been a mental... Uh, it would have been like a school bell. Yeah, it would have been too much. But <laughs> why do you think... I've been trying to think about this the last couple of days. Why do you think it was such a good month? I think we had like... The, all the weekend reads, which are obviously what kind of draw a lot of people in mm. to our work anyway, were all very well done and structured in a really good way across the month, I think. Yeah. And each of them, like we were talking about it before, had a sort of conversation starter quality. You had like Sophie's piece about Factory International that a lot of people have opinions about. Mm. My profile of Sasha Lord, which a lot of people like to talk about. And they, you know, <laughs> people definitely have opinions. Did people really have opinions on that? And then Daniel Timms, which is the subject of last week's podcast, but his piece about, you know, the Manchester question and growth and how our economic boom has sort of affected different people. All those are things that I think are real hot topics in people's minds. Yeah, it's interesting when you go on Twi- uh, Reddit or whatever, or Twitter and you see people chatting about your story when you haven't like d- mm. shared it there. It's always a good sign. Yeah, we've had a good variety. We also had a weekend read about the Manchester rain just to break mm. up the heaviness. So yeah, I think it's, it's just a really, really good month. It's just a lot of new people. It's I think it's exciting. Like obviously we value all our all our millers. I think we've got thirty seven thousand now on the email list. But um, the lifeblood of the whole company and the thing that allows us to do all our journalism is people who uh, who pay a subscription, and it's just mental to see how many. And we've actually got a little offer, haven't we, for 
for our podcast listeners. That's right. So we did this once before, but we'd like to offer you the chance to become a mill member if you're not already. We've done a small discount, admittedly only 10% for your first year. But if you're a listener, you like what we do, you like the kind of journalism we do, you'd like to support it, but you'd also like to get all of our members-only newsletters in your inbox. All you need to do is go to manchestermill.co.uk forward slash pod offer. You'll be able to get a 10% off in the next few days. Grab it while it's there because I think it finishes on Thursday or maybe Friday. So uh, manchestermill.co.uk forward slash pod offer. You'll be able to get a slightly cheaper uh, membership as a thank you for, for listening to the pod. We've also got a sponsor of today's podcast, mm. which is very nice, which is another way we fund our, our activities. University of Manchester got in touch because they particularly wanted to tell our audience about their social responsibility work. So they are leading the way when it comes to social responsibility. They were ranked number one in the UK and Europe and number two in the world, actually, for social and environmental impact in, in a recent like study. And they sent over a few examples of the kind of things they do. So they've got their Be Well program, that's hashtag Be Well, which I think we've written about before, which is working with schools across Greater Manchester to support young people's mental health. Uh, they've got the GM Policy Hub, which is informing local policy, obviously. That includes things like the 2038 Zero Carbon Target. They've got local sixth formers whose parents have not been to university. They're giving them life-changing opportunities through their Manchester Access program. And there are loads of other things. So thanks to the University of Manchester for, for sponsoring us. Um, they sponsored a couple of Monday briefings and, and a podcast. You can find out a lot more about what they're doing by going to their special social responsibility website. And also they've got a newsletter over there, which we'll put a, a link in the notes. So thanks to today's sponsor. And go and check out their materials because it's definitely like a, a range of activity that you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily expect a university to be doing. Okay, let's talk about the first story of the day, which is this shocking case of Andrew Malkinson. So we've reported a little bit on about this, but the bulk of the reporting on this was done by the Sunday Times originally, wasn't it? Mm. And they even did a, a, a podcast about it. So Andrew Malkinson is a man who spent 17 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. I came to the police station in 2003 and told the officers I was innocent. They didn't believe me. I came to the Crown Court in Manchester in 2004 and told the jury I was innocent. They didn't believe me. Today we told this court I was innocent and finally they listened. He's had his rape conviction overturned um, thanks to new DNA evidence. And he is one of the longest serving victims of a miscarriage of justice, well, miscarriage of justice that we know about, at yeah. least, in the country. And the reason we're talking about it on this podcast, the reason we've been covering it in the newsletter, is because Greater Manchester Police were the ones who ran this investigation. That's right. So Andy Burnham's spoken to us about this. Um, you did a briefing about it on Monday. Tell us a little bit more about Malkinson. Yeah, so Malkinson was arrested in 2003 by Greater Manchester Police for a rape of a 33-year-old woman in Salford. So Malkinson's originally from Grimsby, and he was working as a security guard in Salford at the time. And he actually had plans to go travelling around the Netherlands, I think. He'd, mm. been, he'd done a lot of travelling. Mm. But he, he was instead arrested while he was in Salford for this crime. And that's despite him not having any forensic evidence linking him to the crime. There's a few other pieces of evidence that, again, 
would have refuted the fact that he was there. So, for example, there was a big thing made out of the fact that the victim remembered her attacker having a very um, shaved chest. Mm. And when Magnuson took off his shirt, he had, like, a ridiculously hairy chest. And he references that as, like, another thing that was sort of overlooked or just looked past in this sort of... In, during the investigation. And what's come out in his court of appeal here in last week were these sort of disclosure failures by Greater Manchester Police. So not mentioning that one of the key eyewitnesses, because, well, again, because there was no forensic evidence, it became wholly reliant mm. on eyewitness testimony. And one of these witnesses was actually a long-term heroin addict who'd just been arrested for another crime when he came forward as a, as a witness. But that wasn't disclosed. So that it was made him look like more of a credible witness than he perhaps was. And that, yeah, there's a few of those that, that came out during the, the appeal hearing. Yeah. So there seemed to be a catalogue of mistakes that Greater Manchester made, including the ones you've mentioned, not sharing a photograph that backed up the victim's memory of leaving a deep scratch on her attacker's face. There was this, what would you call it, getting rid of the evidence. They, they, they destroyed... The destruction of evidence. Yeah, they, yeah, so that was a complaint went in last July about this. Hmm. It concerned both the disclosure failures, but also the decision by GMP to destroy items of the victim's clothes that she was wearing when she was attacked, specifically her camisole and some underwear. And Malkinson's representatives actually had to go through an archive to find the scraps of clothes that then gave forth this DNA breakthrough that, that overturned his conviction. So again, like there was the risk that that destruction of evidence could have caused this to have not been overturned, which is, that's probably one of the most shocking parts. The whole thing is just absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, the notion of spending 17 years in prison for a, a crime you didn't commit, when the evidence is so weak, there was the ID parade mm. in which he was picked out. Clearly, that was a mistake. Yeah. His lawyer, I'm sure he's got multiple lawyers, but one of his lawyers, Edward Henry Casey, said, quote, the original trial resulted in an unsafe conviction because of deplorable disclosure failures which must lie at the door of Greater Manchester Police, close quotes. Mm. So the lawyer is pretty clear that one of the big issues here is the police investigation not just what happened at the trial. And I think it's important because in the GMP statement, they put out a statement, not from the chief constable, but from an assistant chief constable. They basically said, well, look, it was it was a court of law yeah. that found Malkinson guilty, which is true, but courts can only work with what they're given. And yeah. if there were disclosure failures and failures in the investigation, that is a massive, massive problem. Appeal... The organisation that supported Malkinson in proving his innocence has filed a complaint against GMP. It concerned these disclosure failures and the decision by GMP to destroy items of the victim's clothes. And the chief constable of Greater Manchester Police now, Stephen Watson, actually closed down an internal probe mm. into this investigation, didn't he? I think that was last year. No, it was 2021. Okay. Uh, October 2021, the, there was an investigation by Greater Manchester Police's professional standards branch which was looking into the forces handling of Malkinson's case. Because obviously Malkinson got out of prison in 2020, but has protested his innocence ever since then. So this has been a rolling topic past three years, but also while he was still in prison. And the chief constable had just joined. I think he was three months into the job at that point. And his whole brand as the new chief constable was that he was going to restore public trust because obviously GMP had had all the problem with not recording crimes and that kind of thing. And yeah, within three months, he'd shut down this internal investigation into the forces handling.
And he's also not up for chatting to the media. No. So the statement apologising didn't come from Stephen Watson, the chief constable. No. Would the BBC put in an interview request for the chief constable? Apparently they were turned down, according to the, the reporter who posted it on um, Twitter. When we asked for an interview at the end of last week, they said they, they're not doing interviews about it. Yeah. And they just referred back to their original statement. And that's quite striking because this new chief constable of Greater Manchester Police has been very kind of media friendly in a sense. You know, he's given interviews about kind of how he's a no-nonsense cop and he doesn't believe in all this woke stuff. You know, he's, but he's branded himself in a particular way. And now there's a big crisis at GMP. And he yeah. seems to be on a holiday. And equally, he joined it. The whole idea of restoring trust and was the fact that the GMP struggled with transparency and therefore you were going to have this chief constable who would be mm. open to talk about the work that he was doing. And obviously, he's very open to talk about things like Operation Vulcan and things that are going well. But as you say, when we're in this sort of situation, less so. And what was Vulcan again? Operation Vulcan's the counterfeit, counterfeit crackdown alley. thing, yeah, where essentially huge parts of Cheatham Hill around strange ways are being shut down for selling counterfeit goods. I mean, they do loads of publicity. If you're a journalist, you get dozens of press releases in your inbox every week from the, from the police. They speak to the, the media quite a bit. They should be speaking to the media about this because their failures contributed to the jailing of an innocent man. What did Andy Burnham say when you asked him about this case? Yeah, so when we got in touch with Andy, he said, quote, our sympathy is with Andrew, his family and friends for what he's been through, and said that the thoughts were also with the victim of the crime who 20 years on from the incident is still denied justice. And he said that he plans to meet with Andrew to discuss all of the issues he wants to raise in respect to Greater Manchester Police, and it's important that we look at, this, we look at his allegations about how police handled evidence. My door is open to Andrew to come for a full discussion about all those issues whenever he feels ready. Yeah, I mean, hopefully that does happen because Burnham is technically in charge of Grace Manchester Police, not on an operational level, but in an no. oversight way. And there are just massive questions to answer. So we're going to have more reporting on this, and, and, and I think in the weeks ahead. But fair play to, is it Emily Dugan, for who used to be at the Sunday Times? Yeah. And that is now at The Guardian, yeah. who did a lot of the early reporting on this and, and, and helped to get his case so a higher profile. We'll return to it. Now, Jack, the other story we want to talk about is your is your weekend read. Mm. So you, we mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast, but tell us what it was like when you first met the family, the Tishkals, and they had just arrived from Ukraine a year ago. What do you remember from that? Yeah, so they'd been in the country for a week, and I met them exactly a month on from the day that the war started. The 24th of March is when we met. And we met at Salford Shopping Precinct where they were actually picking up like biometric cards and visas and all those sorts of things. And yeah, I remember it vividly. I remember just being basically stood in the queue with them. I already knew Katharina because I'd already written about her. And they were just kind of this little huddled unit at that point kind of just seemed to move as one body, which was interesting because when I met them last week, I met them in an old shopping centre in Presswich and they all came from different directions from where they now live because they all live separately. And it was interesting to see them now as compared to then because for obvious reasons, when I first met them last year, it was like literally the week before they had escaped Kharkiv in the east of Ukraine. Ukraine's military said it now believes that Russia is focusing its efforts to surround their forces and capture the city of Kharkiv in the northeast Ukraine near the Russian border. Kharkiv sits 40 miles from the Russian border. It is the last major city before Donbass, where Russia is directing its war effort to the east. And they were, you know, scatterbrained, tired, basically shell-shocked as they were for months afterwards. And yeah, meeting them just last week was 
really interesting experience for me and it was it was really nice to hear from them as well how were they different because you mentioned i think darina who's one of the women mm. she was i think 17 when she came here and now she's 19 you were saying yeah. like she she almost seems like a different person yeah 100 percent. like when we met last year well one she had completely different hair but also she mm. she was like as much a Jesuit, quieter. She blonde hair now. yeah she's bleached it but she was like much quieter and I suppose that's probably because it was the first time that we'd all met and stuff like that. But like, see her now when we're having like conversations, she was just like leading the conversation, if that makes sense. It was just interesting to see. And again, like when we met last year, it was like every every other sentence or every few sentences, she'd like turn to Katerina and ask her to translate a word. And now there was none of that. It was just like plowing ahead and just chatting. So yeah, that was interesting. I also had saw the, um, so Katerina's mum's called Labov and I saw her before anyone else but just didn't recognize her again because she had like completely different hair they've all grown the hair out and i was mm. like oh that was you sorry my bad mm. <laughs> but um yeah there has been a little bit of a transformation and they're all a lot happier in some ways but then also when we met last year and we were talking about and the pieces that i wrote last year about them they have like a completely different energy about them it was weird when i went back and read them because it reminded me one how frantically everyone rushed to speak to people from ukraine at that time mm. and also just how back then when you were writing about it it was like there was a weird sense that this would be over within a few months and now we're here and 18 months later and it's not done yet yeah it's nowhere near done yet yeah there was a bit in your piece where Darina said it's strange sometimes to talk to her dad because she'll update him about normal sort of day-to-day stuff mm. and he's a volunteer in the army and he's having his friends killed. He's obviously in a traumatic situation. And that it's kind of like strange to have those conversations. Does it sound like, did it, did it sound to you like that was damaging her relationship with her dad? Or was it just like a, was that just like a feature of being a refugee in a safe country and a family member being in a war zone? Yeah, the the, the latter. I don't think it's anything to, do, to say that it's damaged their relationship, but it's more just like, I think it's like any situation. It's almost like, when you know someone's in a worse situation than you for a, a, a long time, but you all just come in with your sort of, it makes your own life feel trivial. Mm. I feel like we have those situations outside of this much more severe version. It's like if you have a family member who's in like hospital or something, and you go and visit them and they ask about your day and it's like, oh, it doesn't matter what I've been doing because this is what you're dealing with. And if you imagine that, but it's every conversation that you have with someone back home, it engenders a bit of survivor's guilt i think especially for darina but also just generally for people who leave war zones but and even in that family unit they all talk about this sense that like we should be there but we're not and we can't do anything from here and yeah I could, that's quite demoralizing for them yeah because darina also mentioned having arguments with friends and actually losing friends over kind of arguments that went along the lines of well you how dare you say you're having a bad time when you're not even in the war zone anymore mm. you left that kind of, I, I, i'm not i'm just paraphrasing there but that was interesting to hear like how her relationships with some people have been damaged by the fact that she's not there anymore and they are yeah and the way she spoke about it the people who are still there are obviously have less of a filter in telling her what they think of her because the stakes there are so much higher that to think now that you wouldn't be just brutally honest with someone over the phone is just like, who cares? Like, mm. we're in a war zone, just say whatever's on your mind. The way that she described it to me was kind of like, people who are in this situation and really struggling, it's engendered a sort of bitterness towards each other as well as outward to other people. So everyone's always stressed, everyone's always frustrated, and then you're calling up from Manchester being like, hey, how's everything going? Like, there's always going to be a bit jarring. 
Yeah. There's also a nice description from one of them of how much they miss Ukraine. It's a country that has forests and beaches and deserts. And, you know, yeah, that was Dorito. Yeah, yeah they, they obviously really, really miss it. Yeah, and you get this sense as well, though, that a lot of that, like Davina at one point said, you know, like, I never wanted to leave Ukraine. Even when I was there, I never wanted to leave. All my friends wanted to leave, but I didn't. And it's like, if you really felt that way, I don't know if that's partly because, like, now you're away from it and you're like, I never would have left if I could have stayed. But, like, to have that sort of, like, palpable homesickness still, I mean, it's not surprising in a way, but, you know, it's been, like, 18 months and they still talk about it. And, you know, it is home to them. And they're here and it's it's not home to them. Yeah, how do you think they found being in Manchester, being in Bury, etc.? Again, I think, like, when we were talking about the first articles last year, everything was talked about in a very temporary way. So even stuff like going to English classes or enrolling on courses, it was kind of like, those weren't priority things. The priority was like, everyone's safe now, we're going to be going back soon. And then as the war dragged on and that initial shock started to wane, I think it started to dawn on them. It was like, okay, we're actually going to have to start living now and working out what we're going to do. But like Katarina was talking about someone she was speaking to at the school that she runs, a Ukrainian school, they basically said, you know, people talk about in- integration and becoming part of the community. But what is often not understood is the fact that like we had lives and one day we had to just take the smallest amount of that life that we could and just run out of our front door with it. And now we're waiting to return to it still. So I, I could imagine it's really difficult and they say that it is to try and integrate when you still probably feel like one foot still there and that you will return one day and you have that that ambition. Yeah. There's the um, bit of your piece where I think it's Darina talks about how she doesn't like it when she feels like she's getting to know someone or making friends with someone here and they're kind of, she thinks at least, they're making friends with her because she's from Ukraine and maybe they feel guilty or, yeah. they, you know, they feel sympathetic or whatever. And she says, as a result, she doesn't mention Ukraine as much anymore at the beginning because she doesn't just want to answer questions about the war. She doesn't want to have, like, a relationship on, like, false pretenses. And she also said she doesn't really have any close friends here. No. Like, did you... Was that a sort of sad moment when you were speaking to her? did, Did you kind of think, God, this is, like, it must be incredibly difficult to make friends here? Or, like, what was your sort of impression of what it's been like for them socially, I guess? I just think... A lot of, especially for Darina, a lot of what she thinks of as friendships, relationships, all of those things are still bundled up within Ukraine Mm. and she can't access them. So she can't access those friendships or that kind of feeling anymore because it's there and not here. So, yeah, when she talks about, she describes herself at some point, she was like, sometimes I felt like a bit of a monkey in a cage. Like, if I mention I'm from Ukraine, it's like, oh, did you see this? Or, you know, said the worst thing you can be asked is, still, is the war still happening? Or stuff like that. Mm. Yeah, it was interesting to hear that because it was something that I'd kind of suspected anyway, was that there was a lot of really, you know, swelling sentiment when Ukrainians first came here to want to try and, like, support them and all that sort of thing. And that's dwindled with time. which is natural really as everyone's got more used to this being in the news cycle but to hear from someone actually experiencing like a real world implication of that which is that feeling of like oh this person's actually only interested in because i've had to flee a war zone 
and to feel you know to feel reduced to that in that way as well must be really difficult and i could imagine it is yeah i mean my friend um anna who's a journalist in ukraine and who i met at a conference last year she said the biggest for all like one of the biggest frustrations when she thinks about like how the war is thought of in the west is that the coverage was so intense and then it basically disappeared yeah like there's still ukraine coverage but it's like you kind of have to go looking for it it's rarely like front pages of websites occasionally if there's like an offensive or you know that the, Zelensky says something really controversial but like generally speaking the whole news agenda has moved on which I think is inevitable but um for her it's I think yeah kind of hurtful and the biggest thing that she would want is like for people to just like re-engage yeah which was pretty interesting to hear what's your sense of what's next for them like are they settling down to be here long term now or like do they still have a date in their mind where they want to go back they must have like a visa expiration date as well yeah so their visas expire next march and they don't know how that will go at that point whether they have to go elsewhere or if they'll get renewed darina wants has taken sort of uh, graphic design courses but she's still doing a, a computer linguistics program at the Kharkiv Polytechnic Institute remotely, which is crazy when you think about that. So she's still got two years of that degree left and she, don't know, she doesn't know she'll be doing that remotely for the whole time. She'll be going back. I mean, the campus has been bombed. But obviously in the case of Katerina, she lives here, so she'll be staying here. Darina's mum, Elena, is looking for work as a hairdresser now and has been to like college courses, done English classes. And then Lubov, who's Katerina's mum, is in a kind of assisted living complex now. And she said she's really settled there and quite happy. So she said she'll go back to Ukraine if it's ever safe again. But she's also sort of gotten used to the way of life here and is, is quite settled and comfortable. Darina's like the opposite. She's like, she was going to go back to Ukraine this August, but was talked out of it. You can tell that she has like a burning desire to go back and probably will at some point. Yeah, it's a really interesting piece. I think both pieces about them are really interesting, but it's that they're really good insights into what it's like to be a, yeah. a refugee from a war. Jack, thanks for telling us about that. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. Um, I'm actually off next week. I'm going to Romania. So Molly and Jack are going to cook up an episode in my absence, um, which I'm looking forward to hearing while I'm away. Thanks so much for listening. And if you like this podcast, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review and leaving a little rating, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever, it massively helps, or sharing it with a few other people who listen to podcasts. We're trying to grow it. We want to have our first, I think it's our first 5,000 download month or something. It's still a lot smaller than the newsletter, so we're still really trying to get it going. Um, so we'd really appreciate you sharing it with people, sharing it on social, that kind of thing. And also getting in touch to tell us what you, what we should improve or what we should add. It's uh, Yoshi at manchestermill.co.uk. And if you want to become a member and you're not already, there's that little uh, discount as a thank you for listening. It's uh, manchestermill.co.uk forward slash pod offer. See you very soon.